It passed in 2020 and Portland got rent control. And then it passed again two years later. They thought, you know, we don't have enough here. Let's really tighten the screws. So everything that went into um, ordinance in 2020 um, got even more severe in 2022. Lower increase of rents, longer notices, higher fines, higher registration fees. It's just really clamped down such that today, I think Portland's rent control is considered among the most strict in the country. Marita matters. Advocacy. Thoughtful. I get inspired by my colleagues. I think the value of Marita is, is the people. The value of Marita? The value of Marita is immense. Because Marita matters. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Marita Matters, the podcast that lets you listen in on conversations with people who are driving responsible development in Maine. I'm Craig Young. I'm the current president of Marita and a partner and broker at the Bolas Company. And joining me today is a dear friend of many, many years. I don't know how many, but does Gary Vogel. Gary, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, Gary is an attorney with uh, Drummond Woodsum. He is a former Merida president, still on the board, and uh, a very busy guy. I've known Gary over 20 years or so doing what I would say are fairly complex real estate deals, whether it's land use and approvals, financing, getting people out of trouble. <laughs> Gary, tell us a little bit about your practice in real estate and sort of what brings you here today. Sure. Yeah, I've always had an interest in um, land use and development. Um, and I have to say a lot of that came about by virtue of, you know, first volunteering to be on the Merida Public Policy Committee and then chairing it for many years and really diving in and getting involved in, in um, real estate policy. And so, uh, and that's been great for me professionally and that I've been able to use that to help my clients. And, um, and I do, I do a lot of complicated development with clients. I'd say probably 50% of my practice is representing affordable housing developers. Um, affordable housing is obviously, uh, you know, it's, it's complicated. There's usually we end up with four or five different types of financing for each transaction, but it's obviously you know, incredibly important and really fulfilling, you know, to see new affordable developments um, come into place. And I assume over the years, you've done a fair amount of work with the city of Portland and getting approvals here. How's that process been for you? Um, you know, enjoyable, I'm sure. It, well, it's been, it's always enjoyable when you're able to, you know, get good results. Um, the process in the city of Portland um, sort of, you know, goes back and forth with the political winds from time to time. So sometimes it can be very frustrating. I mean, I know I have, I have a lot of clients who from time to time say they, you know, they don't want to do development in Portland. Usually they eventually get their nerves back and, and come forward because Portland is where so much is happening, you know, and you kind of want to be here. Um, we're going to talk today, of course, about rent control. And that, you know, among with a f among a number of other things, has made, you know, development and property, uh, being a property owner in Portland, you know, a lot more challenging. And, um, you know, but hopefully, with efforts through, you know, of uh, individuals like Brit, you know, we can improve the climate. Well, as you know, Merida, which stands for Maine Real Estate and Development Association, is Maine's premier 350 member-driven nonprofit real estate association supporting responsible real estate development in Maine. And I think it's key to stop there and just say it's really responsible real estate development we're all fighting for, not just any development. 
our members show up and step up to support and promote public policies in real estate that are fair, practical, and predictable. I'd also like to thank all of our members, but in particular those that have helped make this first year of Merida Matters possible with their sponsorship, and in particular our gold sponsors, MBT Bank and Landry French Construction. Uh, thank you all for your support. And now, to get into the show a little bit, Gary, do you want to take a moment and introduce our guests? Sure. So with us today, we have Britt Vitalius. Uh, Britt is a well-known real estate broker to many people in the Portland area. He's also the chair or president, I believe, I'm not sure which, of the uh, Rental Housing Alliance. Um, and um, uh, and Britt is involved in the committee uh, that's that's trying to make some reforms to our rent control ordinance. And uh, also with us is Jessica James. Jessica is a public relations consultant um, and the owner of Longfellow Communications. And um, Jessica, I'm gonna let you say yeah. how you fit into this discussion today. Sure, thanks Gary. So um, I, I run Longfellow Communications. We're a regional strategic communications consultancy. And I have a, um, several clients in the responsible real estate acquisition, development, and management sector here in Greater Portland. So looking forward to the conversation. Thank you for having me. Well, as we get into this, maybe we'll start with Brett and just sort of say, why are we here today? What are you working on today? And then we'll step back and sort of how did this sort of come about? Well, the reason we're here today is somewhat ironic because um, we've put forward a ballot question that's going to go to the voters in Portland on June 13th, um, asking for a change to the rent control ordinance that we have. And it's ironic because we are generally opposed to the referendum process and think it's a terrible way to make housing policy. And I think that's probably going to be part of our conversation. Can we just stop there and just say it is a awful way to do public policy in Portland, but we'll get back to that later. Yes, <laughs> I, hope, I hope we do. So we have a very narrow question on the ballot which is essentially vacancy decontrol. And so it's a, it's a change, it's an improvement, we believe, for both tenants and landlords to the current very complex policy. But we're looking to make this one narrow change in June. And how did this first come about? The current ordinance, my understanding, came about in a, a referendum vote in 2020, which was slightly amended this past November. Can you talk about that? There have actually been three times that rent control has been put before the voters in Portland. First in 2017, where it was defeated two to one, uh, unanimously, you know, overwhelmingly uh, in Portland, it was rejected. But because of the referendum process, it's very easy for the Democratic Socialists to just bring it back and ask again and ask again. So it got on the ballot again in 2020. And it passed in 2020, we believe, primarily because there was a presidential race, there was a Senate race and it was in the middle of COVID. So we had no ability to get out and have that sort of community engagement and community discussion about housing policy in 2020. So in Portland, people vote on the title and a brief summary. Not They don't read the 17 pages and decide whether they think it's great housing policy. They vote up or down on a title and a summary. So it passed in 2020 and Portland got rent control. But it wasn't just rent control at that time. There were other pieces to that puzzle. Well, it's, it, there's a lot of parts of the rent control. So yeah, there's a, there's a whole bunch in there. And then it passed again two years later. They thought, you know, we don't have enough here. Let's really tighten the screws. So everything that went into um, ordinance in 2020 um, got even more severe in 2022. 
lower increase of rents, longer notices, higher fines, higher registration fees. It's just really clamped down such that today, I think Portland's rent control is considered among the most strict in the country. Interesting. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I mean, I, in preparation for our conversation today, I pulled up the ordinance and read it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'd have to say, I consider myself generally familiar with these things. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in there that I wasn't even aware of. I mean, for example, the maximum increase that a landlord can get in the absence of a turnover is 70% of CPI. So essentially, landlords fall behind by 30% of the increase in inflation every year. And, and that's if they seek to, you know, put the max, you know, do the maximum amount of, of increase, which many landlords don't want to do for existing tenants. And, and that brings us to what we've put forward is because the, um, the, the kickback, the unintended consequence of limiting the increases. And so again, just to, to make sure we understand the point we're starting at, which is we feel the most important part of Portland's rent control that is different than most, which is when the tenant leaves, you cannot go to market rent. So you are still encumbered by the rent control, even with a vacant unit. So- And what does the current ordinance allow for a rent increase today if a tenant leaves voluntarily? 5%. 5%. 5%. And these rents got fixed back in June of 2020. So this passed in November, 2020, whatever your rent was back in June, the middle of COVID, that's your rent that everything keys off of. And basically this ordinance tries to capture the rate of return you made on your property back in June. And that's the only rate of return you can ever make on your property. It fixes it in time as though that was your ideal moment. You were making the most you would ever want to make on your building in June, 2020. And therefore that's all you can ever make. So it, everything's based off that rental amount and all the increases go back to that June. And if you're lucky, you have a fixed rate mortgage that you got then you know, that goes on for many years. But we know that for many commercial property owners, they have mortgages that are maturing. And now they've got to go and get a mortgage in this new rate environment. And not just rate. I mean, if you look at where rates were in 20 and 22, it was three, maybe 4%. Today, we're twice that. We're somewhere in the six, 7%. Um, inflation alone, just on upkeep to an apartment building, which I don't know who else here has owned them in the past, but I have, and it's always more than you think, right? Uh, and so it doesn't really allow for that. I know there's some caveats, but it doesn't fully allow for that. Um, yeah, well, and the caveats are very narrow and include going before a rent board, which is a volunteer board made up primarily of tenants. And so I encourage anyone, if they're a masochist, to go spend an evening watching a rent board meeting and watch these folks who are well-intentioned try and figure out uh, depreciation schedules and how to account for how that roof plays in to what you should be allowed to get as an exception to your rental increase. But and my understanding, you're not looking to change all these other aspects. You have a pretty narrow defined, and I think Jess is going to jump in here in a second. But today we're really talking about that tenant that voluntarily leaves. What can a landlord do today? And Jess, you represent a number of landlords in the city who are dealing with this issue. Yep. And you interact with tenants. Yep. Uh, can yep. you give us your experience on that? Totally. I like to say rental housing provider instead there of landlord. <laughs> um, so you might hear that. Um, and it's well it's well intentioned um, because I think that that's truly what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who provide housing um, 
and 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 those people are uh, so important right now in Portland and and, and throughout the state. Um, I was going to comment, you know, uh, as a person who doesn't come from an uh, an economic background necessarily, you know, that just even listening to you all talk about rates and and Britt talk about this policy. I mean, this is the tip of of a of, an, of a large iceberg, right? It's a five percent. Um, cap at turnover, but there's a, a different limit for, you know, for how much you can increase the rent um, in a 12-month period and, and whether you can increase it when you install a new heating system. And I mean, it's extremely complicated policy um, that most folks, uh, you know, are not going to have the ability to to digest and, and comprehend. And um, it, it's, it's really uh, burdensome on rental housing providers. And there are, there are a lot of different um, types of rental housing providers here in Portland, right? There's, there's, um, you know, uh, people who own a few units or owner occupied or, you know, uh, all the way to large um, uh, real estate acquisition development management companies, all the way to out of state management companies and, and housing providers that are coming in. So it's, um, it's an extremely burdensome, complicated policy you know, that not only is difficult for the average voter to understand, but it's difficult for the rental housing provider to understand. And I think that's key to this as well. You know, we're we're trying to um, support these people as they look to provide more rental housing in Portland. And, and this policy, um, through through not only how complicated it is now, but how much it's changed, how frequently it's changing, like Britt pointed out, it's really burdensome for these people who are trying to provide rental housing. I think that's a key here. And one of the things that this change is trying to 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 do is i i used to work in dc i worked on capitol hill you know policy even the best intended policy you know it's it's hard to understand how that's going to function when it's implemented right there's always or often unintended consequences of that policy and so one of the things we should probably do is talk about what the change is. Yeah. Uh, do one of you want to read or at least comment on what are the specific changes that you're putting before the voters on June 13th? I'd be happy to read it. And it's it's very short and simple. And that was on purpose. That if we're asking people to vote on something, although we don't like this for policy creation, we want it to be simple and understandable and targeted. And, and we and, genuinely and, think it's in the best interest of tenants and landlords. And I just wanted to, to just make one point here before you get in and tell us this. I mean, part of the reason why you're doing this by referendum is we have a referendum process that provides that when you have a ordinance that's adopted by referendum, like our rent control, that the city council can't amend it for a period of five years. So even, even though you look through this and you say, oh, there's a lot of problems with this ordinance. If you had, if you went through the normal legislative process with a committee and hearings and having stakeholders appear and all of that, you you work through these issues and you hopefully, you know, resolve them. But we can't do that. And now to make an amendment, you have to go through the referendum process. Totally, and that's where I was going with the this idea of unintended consequences. Um, we are we are locked in with this for five years, and 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 a common mis perception is that automatically at five years, it's going to get re reviewed and revised, and we're going to be able to have a moment to say what worked and what didn't. That's not true. It's only that you you can have the, you know, the city council can bring it up after five years. So um, that's that's sort of where I was going with this idea of, of unintended consequences. And, and while there's a lot here, I think what Brent and the Rental Housing Alliance is trying to do with this uh, proposal is say, um, 
you know, there's there's this one really serious unintended consequence that's coming out of this the implementation of this policy. And we're trying to fix that with a, a very narrow proposal. And yes, we're limited to doing that through the referendum process. But I think um, we can get into this more later after Brett shares the shares the information. But I think that, that that's a, a, a really serious um, misperception out there among the public that this is sort of landlords or rental housing providers trying to trying to propose a sort of anti-rent control initiative. And what we're really talking about here is a really narrow, uh, reasonable fix to the implementation of a policy, which which we would normally, the city council would normally take up on its own. All right, so why don't I read what this is and then we can talk more about why we felt we needed it. The substance of, it's one paragraph, but I'm gonna read just the first couple sentences because that's the substance of it. It says, if the tenancy of a covered unit, that's a rent controlled unit, is terminated voluntarily by a tenant, the landlord may establish a new base rent at their discretion. Voluntary termination occurs when a tenant decides to return the lease premises to the landlord before the expiration of the lease or determines not to renew a lease. That's it. The rest of the paragraph is about the tenant protection and making sure it was a voluntary termination. So it's incredibly simple and says, if the tenant leaves on their own, they can't be forced out, they can't be coerced out, driven out. If and when they leave on their own, then the housing provider can establish a new base rent. It's that simple. And once they establish that new base rent, they're then locked into that base rent um, until that next tenant voluntarily leaves. Correct. Yes. And the reason this is important is because most housing providers don't actually increase the rent on their tenants. Contrary to what the DSA might have us believe, when we've got a happy tenant, we tend to keep it low or don't move the rent at all. And once you start restricting what you can do when they do leave, you force the hand of the housing provider today to say, oh, I'm never gonna catch up if I don't start raising it every year. So the reality is tenants in Portland have seen more rental increases since rent control passed than prior. So they would, I, I believe strongly that if the DSA did not know who wrote this, they might be in favor of it. And in fact, a lot of tenants signed the petition and only after they found out who was behind it did they ask to have their name taken off the petition. And that's what's sad about making policy the way we're doing by vote campaign is because it becomes about two sides, one against another and not about the policy. And we'll get into the referendum pro uh, process in a second, but I also wanted to just highlight the other misnomer is uh, when properties sell, the leases go with the sale. So if Brit sells me a property, I can't buy it and then just raise the rents however I want to. I know for a lot of sort of folks not in the real estate industry, they think that's not true, but it is true. It's the law and the lease goes with it. So you, ha you have seen a number of sales. Those new owners have to buy, buy those rent structures. Um, it not only depresses value of the real estate, but it's tough for those new owners that may have some capex, uh, capital improvements they need to do. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's a misnomer as well. Yes, rent control follows the unit to, to your point here. And some people wonder if there's some exception or, or something. And it certainly brought down the value of uh, the commercial multis in Portland. We've seen it very clearly. Let's talk a little bit about where you're at in the process now. Um, obviously, you have this vote on uh, June 13th. Yes. Um, tell us what you're doing to get out the vote. I assume the key thing on an sort of an off-month or off-year election. There's no presidential election, no governor, no senator. How do you get people out to vote? 
Well, we're going to be doing a lot of door-to-door -door engagement and engaged with our network and the community of folks in Portland who don't like the direction Portland's going, don't like this back and forth with a referenda. So we've got a list. When we came time to collect signatures, we collected over 3,000 valid signatures in two and a half weeks. It was a Herculean effort, but we got it. And we saw that people in Portland don't like this process and they don't like the way it's going. So we're gonna just have to reach back out to all these folks and make sure they get out to vote on election day. And that's going to be the challenge. So we're gonna look and we're right in the process now of what technology is available, what text reminders can we have out there and emails and door to door and uh, call trees. But this really is getting out your neighbors and making sure but we know a lot, of, a lot of people don't go out to vote this time of year. So, and again, just to clarify for folks who don't know, the 3,000 signatures you got were 3,000 signatures from people who live in Portland today. Correct. It can't be someone like myself who lives in Scarborough. Even though I work in Portland, I'm heavily involved in things in Portland. You have to live in Portland. We also know in a typical election, how many people in Portland show up for a presidential election? I think it's like 20,000 or more. I think we're a city of about 60,000. And I think they get around 20, 25,000. Yeah, I think we have a higher than average voter turnout um, compared to other cities of our, our same size. So, But, but, but it's in these off-cycle yeah. um, elections, it could be as little as like three or 4,000. Correct. I, I think 2,500 to 4,000 is what we're anticipating. The only other thing on the ballot looks like it's going to be um, the school budget. Although, um, interestingly, the council is actually considering uh, the referendum ordinance uh, and, and placing that on the ballot in June. So, um, so we're, we'll one of the things we're, we're asking, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a Portland voter, is please get out and vote. It's huge. Every vote really counts. Every vote always counts. In a, in a low turnout election, every vote really counts. And that is the name of the game with this election in June. So can we talk a little bit about the messaging that you, you think is going to you know, appeal to you know, Portland voters to have them turn out? We're trying to figure that out. You know, these these issues are so complicated and most people don't really care about rent control. Are they going to get up off their couch to make sure they go vote on some one line edit to rent control? It's a challenge. And so we are looking into the messaging and trying to understand what resonates. Is it that it hurts the mom and pop landlords? Is it that it hurts the tenants and the tenants are seeing increases? Um, is it that ultimately rent control is seen as being bad for housing in the long term? And I think like so many proposals we see in politics, it seems like a good idea, you know, one layer deep, but is not, not actually good long-term policy. So that's what we're trying to figure out right now. And, and frankly, you know, is there a persuasion campaign that's going to work or is it really just go to the people who already agree with us and make sure they vote? Sure. Yeah. I mean, part of it seems like it's what you talked about when you were talking about the reason for this is... You know, the way the ordinance is currently written, it really incentivizes or even maybe forces your landlord, the property owner, to have to make an increase as much as they can every year. Otherwise, they feel like they're really going to get behind. And so, you know, if you don't want your if you don't want your landlord to do that, you should vote for something like this, which enables them to say, I don't want to raise the rent on my current tenants and I can catch up when when the unit turns over. 
I think it's also, too, you know, this idea of it's what's best for housing development in, in Portland. And I think a lot of people can get behind that idea. You know, whether you're a current renter now or you were recently a renter or you have a child or a grandchild who's been a renter, you know, you you probably think that there's, you know, a, a, an issue with housing in Portland. You know, we all we all feel it and we don't we don't deny that. Right. Um the question is what you know what's the solution and and i think part of this you know that's important to reiterate is that it maintains all current tenant protections that are in the rent control ordinance but another piece you know that's important is this idea that we we need more people to to want to take on becoming a rental housing provider and 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 we need development and we need more housing of all types um, for all kinds of renters across the city and and I think it's that that idea is really central to this as well, um, you know. And I think remembering I'm a communications professional, right? It's sort of remembering and and Britt and I chuckle about this, but it's remembering that the 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 voters it's not the voters' job to understand complex housing policy, right? It's it's it should be done through committees and experts and debate and and public forum and we're we're forced to do it through this referendum process so i think this this campaign in particular in my opinion really needs to be about the sharing of information right and this podcast is one opportunity to do that but it's making sure people understand at the heart of this it's really just a narrow policy fix for an unintended consequence that came out of out of rent control and um and, and meeting people where they're at and providing that information. Look, has your rent gone up this year? Yeah, here's, here's why. And it's, it's challenging, right? We're talking about economic policy and the idea of, of the free market. Um, I think the Press Herald article that came out when, when um, the committee submitted the signatures was, I think the, the tagline was, landlords want to increase rent as much, you know, however much they want or at turnover. And it, it's just, it's sort of like um, not, fundamentally correct right the market's not going to allow it's just a scare tactic right the yeah. market's not going to allow Britt to to raise his rents as high as he wants as much as i want <laughs> <laughs> which know, would be great but it's just not reality <laughs> and the other reality is i think this is the only city in the state that allows this we know that there was a, a potential competing um process to fix this within the city council itself and they ultimately backed away from it there's been another rent control measure approved in South Portland, uh, which South Portland has said they're not going to hire people to police and really follow. But even in their ordinance, they stopped short of capping the rate increase for a turnover because they realize it's just not good business. So even in other cities where you're seeing people talk about this and initiate some legislation regarding it, they've bypassed um, a fixed rate of return once a tenant rolls over. And so I think you're really you're you're really getting us where the rest of the state kind of is. Is that fair? I, I think that's a good way to say it. And and frankly, we would love more. I mean this is not some landlord wish list <laughs> that we're putting in here. There's a lot of tough stuff in the current ordinance that we're not touching. We really made this as narrow and as good side as good for both um, the housing providers and the tenants as possible. And the South Portland situation really illustrates how it's such a great contrast of the kind of policy you come to if you go through deliberation. And they took six months, a very liberal council, and came to something very different than Portland. 
and something that we did not oppose, frankly, um, as a rental housing alliance, because they're trying to put on guardrails to stop the really egregious behavior where some out-of-state landlord could come in and effectively give notice to 60 families all at once and displace a whole bunch of families and kids and school systems and all that. And we said, you know what? That's also not okay. And so I don't begrudge communities for looking at the issue. Housing is extremely constrained right now. And to look at putting some guardrails on makes sense. But that's so different from what we have in Portland, which was written by our most extreme political group, the Democratic Socialists. They wrote their wish list, and it was an up or down vote. And that's just such a different product than if we had gone through the deliberative process. And ultimately, it really is going to be bad for the city of Portland and for housing in Portland. Whichever side of the political spectrum you're on, it's a terrible way to write policy. So and we keep talking about rent control, but coming back to the referendum. Yeah. And ultimately, that's really what has uh, got Portland by the neck right now. Before we move on to the referendum part of the conversation, um, who's working on this with you folks? Who's in support of it? Um, if people want to get involved, who can they reach out to? How do people help? We've got pretty broad community support. And what I'm really hoping this time around, and what we had back in 2017, was the affordable housing community. Because their voice and their opinion about housing is given a very different weight by voters in the city than if I say, oh, the landlords support this, or the realtors support this, or the developers. So the, the traditional cast of characters who come out and support this um, don't help us politically. We need broader support and we need other folks in the community to stand up and say, this really is better. We're comfortable standing behind this. The affordable housing folks go to their boards and say, this is important. We want to stand up. So we're hoping to get those folks involved. And this ordinance does not affect affordable housing. They're under their own... Um, they're exempt. Criteria, they're exempt because they have their own funding that caps their increase. So it has nothing to do with affordable housing. These are market rate only housing. Affordable housing is explicitly exempt and owner-occupied two, three, and four unit multifamilies are explicitly exempt. And if somebody wants to get involved in the campaign, who do they call? Britt, what's your <laughs> phone number? <laughs> <laughs> they, they can call me and go to, um, we're, we're putting up a website, I think. Yep. Yeah, uh, it's really a grassroots community effort at this point. Um, and Britt and the Rental Housing Alliance um, are, and a lot of the Housing Alliance members are really active. So we there's information on um, that website, and we'll we'll take we'll take all the all the help we can get. I mean, I think it's um, to Britt's point, it's sort of unnecessarily political, unnecessarily contentious. Um, it's the nature of the political process. It's not something that's you know, novel to this this proposal, um, but anybody who's supportive of additional housing supply, you know, um, in Portland should be should be supportive of this proposal. I would imagine. Though, so, you know, just that's really a, an important point that you make because you know, although this is about the ordinance and and really one very narrow piece of the ordinance, the bigger picture is about increasing the availability of housing of all types, which we know is, you know, is the solution to the problem. Um, I mean, at the time that this, that this rent control ordinance was adopted, there were a number of other referenda that also had similar, you know, impacts that sort of depressed housing, you know, development. 
When you look around the city right now, you don't really see that because there's a couple of really large projects that are under construction, but many people probably don't realize that those sort of came in under the wire mm -hmm. and that those projects, you know, could not be approved today in their current form. And as a result, you know, I know I moderated a, a panel um, with Merida on the Green New Deal, and we were looking at the city's own data about how many you know, permits and housing starts there had been since the adoption of the Green New Deal and rent control, and they were way down. And so one of the things that we need to, to, to focus on is, you know, how important these kinds of measures are to making sure that, you know, housing providers want to continue to come and develop housing in Portland, which we desperately need. Oh, we do. By some reports, the state of Maine is 20,000 units short of housing. That includes single-family homes, market rate, affordable housing, senior housing, uh, and the rest. So that's a lot of housing for a relatively small state like Maine. And I think Portland is the bulk of that. It's something like 5,000 units short. So we need a lot of housing, and, and having these barriers isn't going to help. Um, it, it certainly doesn't help. You know, we talk to developers all the time and nobody is considering developing housing in Portland. They're, they're going further north. They're going west. They're, they're going somewhere else. And well, with the exception, I think, of one party, and I think Tom Watson has shown time and time again not to be discounted. We know that he's going forward with a development that will have some affordable housing, but he's getting a lot of financing that helps that. But he, and, even Tom's development, that he's what he's proposing requires an amendment yes. of the Green New Deal ordinance because he's proposing, you know, taking 25% of his development and making affordable housing, but he's not looking at putting 25% in each building. He's looking at doing some, you know, affordable housing, some traditional, you know, uh, LIHTC, uh, which is the acronym for Low Income Housing Tax Credit Development. You know, which is really the one program that's out there yep. for developing new affordable housing. And, um, and I think it makes sense, but it's going to require an amendment of the, of the ordinance. And unless the city council, you know, elects to amend the five-year rule, you know, he's going to have to go out to the public and get that amended by referendum as well, which could be very challenging. Which is no way to do business. It is no way to do business. So let's talk about the referendum process for a bit. I know, Gary, you're very familiar with this. I'm gonna let you lead the charge in this discussion because you're the, you're the big brain on this one. Talk to sure. us about the current process, um, how it works, why it does or doesn't work. Yeah, and I, I um, Britt um, probably knows more of some of the details in terms of, you know, the gathering of signatures, because you've just been through that than I do. But, but essentially, you know, and this is based on state law. Um, so state law has a process, you know, Maine is, is very um, sort of beholden to its sort of citizen involvement and engagement in the, you know, electoral process. We have things like a people's veto, you know, where you can do through referendum, you can undo a law that a city council or the state passes. Um, so we have this referendum process. Portland's situation is unique because of this five-year rule that's built into the Portland um, ordinances. Um, but the referendum process is one that allows, um, you know, allows referenda to, to be initiated by citizens. I, I think in the past, it, you know, it worked well for the kinds of issues that 
um, you know, legislators or city councilors didn't want to, um, you know, didn't want to get involved in and that were maybe, um, you know, very simple sort of up or down vote issues. Do you want to allow civil unions or gay marriage, right? And, and for years, politicians didn't want to touch that issue, you know, because they were just concerned that, you know, they might really, um, uh, they might really uh, appease some people and they might really piss off some others. Um, same thing, um, you know, another one would be, uh, you know, cannabis. Uh, was, you know, was done, some of that was done through the referendum process on a statewide basis. And so those are the kinds of issues that tend to lend themselves to referenda. But what we've seen since the democratic socialists have come to Portland is that they're really, you know, engaging on very complex issues that really don't lend themselves well to this process because they need the kind of public engagement and stakeholder process that Britt talked about that went on in South Portland when they adopted their rent control ordinance. But, you know, it's but easy. But just off the moment, the process in Portland is even different than the statewide process. My understanding, one of the, and I don't know the numbers, but the percentage of signatures you need in Portland is dramatically less than you would need on a statewide and I think the statewide referenda, while I don't like it, is acceptable because you do need such a large number of people to sign. Britt, how many people did you need to get this on the ballot? Portland requires 1,500 valid signatures. 1,500. We're proud we had over 3,000, but Portland requires 1,500. Right. And we're a city of, I said, six or 70,000. There's probably 40,000 voters in it. That's just a fraction. It's a fraction. I mean, it's less than 5%. That's right. So low threshold, and you can basically camp out downtown and get them all or camp out at the polls and get them all. So that was my next question. How long did it take you to get 3,000 signatures? Uh, just about two and a half weeks, but it was, it was a big effort. And big we're effort. talking real estate now, but this would apply to any referenda that was going to the Portland voters. Is that correct? Yes. Sure. I, and I don't know that answer. I'm sort of asking for people who are listening. So I could bring anything I want to the public if I could just get 1,500 to 2,000 votes that can be authorized. Correct. Seems a little crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> what should it be, Gary? Well, it, first of all, there should be um, a number of additional limits on that. It should be more difficult to do that. It should require sort of a cross-section of the voting public. So in Portland, you know, we have five legislative districts, I believe, five council districts. They're, you know, the, the off-peninsula districts are politically much more... Um, you know, much more moderate than some of the, you know, urban districts on the peninsula. So by requiring that a certain number of signatures come from each of the districts could be a, could be a big help. Um, it should also require that the council, you know, have an opportunity. I mean, they, I, I'm not sure whether they do in every instance when a referendum goes forward. I think that the council has the opportunity to pass it. They only have two vote choices. They basically, or maybe three choices, they can pass it, or if they choose not to pass it, they can't turn it down. If they turn it down, it essentially goes to the voters. And then the third choice is they can put a competing measure on the ballot, which basically says, well, because we know this measure is coming from these individuals who are, who are soliciting this referendum, we don't think that that's a good way to go, but we don't want you know, there just to be an up or down vote on that. We want the, the public to consider a third alternative. And I assume you also think there should be 
a larger number of people signing a petition for a referenda. Sure, absolutely. I think one of the challenges too, and this can cut both ways, whether you're trying to put something on the ballot or or, or not, but um, when you when you're asked to sign this, your what you're signing is um, a document saying you wish to see it on the ballot, not that you that you support the policy proposal, right? Um, and the the your, the people gathering your signature are required to provide you with a full copy of the of what you, the proposal that you're that you're saying should be on the ballot. But I think um, it's probably infrequent that someone sits there you know, on the sidewalk in front of the grocery store and reads the entire and the entire proposal. And these things tend to be long, they tend to be complicated, and they require the kind of explanation that we're getting the opportunity to give here today, but not while you're, you know, I'm running in with my three kids to get groceries. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it connects back to that, that time-honored tradition. I can remember uh, as a kid, you know, the, my father being involved in one um, for, for the clear-cutting referendum, but, uh, this time-honored tradition of, you know, you can have your, your day in court kind of thing. You know, I'm going to sign this and let you let you have the chance to put it in front of voters. And it's not necessarily an up or down signature on whether the proposal or the policy is, is good or bad. Um, and, and I mean, it, it, like I said, it cuts both ways, but I think that's, that's another challenge, right? It, it's, it appears on the ballot. Um, and, and then you're again asking those folks to, okay, read this on your own, understand it, comprehend it, and make a decision on this complicated policy. And that's that's simpler when it's a, you know, some of the examples you gave, Gary, but it's, it's more difficult when we're talking about something that requires this lengthy explanation. So beyond us just complaining about this referenda <laughs> process, how would one go about changing the Portland referenda process? Well, unfortunately, as I understand, you can't do that by referendum. You Which is classic. <laughs> the city council controls that. So the city council, now the city council can put something out to referendum or the city council can vote on something, but a citizen's initiative can't change the five-year rule, for example, that we've been talking about. Um, so, But what you're saying, the city council could perhaps put forward an initiative for Portland voters to vote on changing the referenda to maybe three years instead of five years, maybe it's 5,000 voters instead of 1,500 voters, they could make that change. Any of the things we've been talking about could be could be enacted by the council. They could be enacted by the council with a majority vote of the council. Oh, so the council wouldn't have to necessarily send that to a people's vote as far as you know. I think it may have to go to a vote to amend that was my the referendum well. ordinance. And again, the irony, just to make sure we say it again, you cannot collect signatures to send something out to the voters. Right. To, if it's about the referendum ordinance itself. So everything else that we've been talking about today, rent control and the Green New Deal and all these things, they collected signatures and went out to the voters. But if your rent control or if your referendum process itself is broken and you want to fix it, you cannot collect signatures for that. The council has to get have the will to do that. And here, the evening of the day we're recording this, it's going to go to a workshop in front of the council this evening, and they're starting to talk about it because they're seeing... The referenda process. Correct. Mm -hmm. So they're thinking about it because, in part because of our initiative here, which is the, the basis for this show, our amendment to the rent control process, they're seeing this back and forth like this ping pong game where, you know, we're changing two lines of code 
you know, in June, and then they'll change something back in November. And holy cow, this is not how to run a city. This is housing policy. So I think even the council that doesn't necessarily want to touch anything that might be perceived as limiting democracy is seeing that, well, you know what, maybe this is not working because they're seeing it in action and the back and forth is just really getting out of control. So now is the time to get involved. If you want to see a change uh, to the referendum process, reach out to your counselors. They need to hear from you. They have emails. We won't give them out here, but you can find them very easy by going to the uh, City of Portland website and just let them know your thoughts on it. If they hear from you, they will hear you, and that does change their vote occasionally. Um, anything well, else to add to some well, of that? Just, I mean, just look at last November. You know, last November we had 13 initiatives on the ballot. I mean, I wonder how many Portland voters even, you know, read them all. But the the campaign that um, that the uh, the Portland Chamber got around was enough is enough, and and I'm hoping that that message and it was somewhat successful. Many of those referenda questions were defeated, and their message was. This is crazy. This is not the way to to enact public policy changes, you know, in Portland. And enough is enough. And so hopefully some of that message is resonating with the council now in the action that they're considering about changing the referendum process. Yeah. Well, sort of to wrap things up, I think enough is enough is uh, a good indicator <laughs> for that. We have a couple of uh, takeaways from today. One is get out and vote. Two, the time to vote is on June 13th. Correct. If you want to get involved in this campaign, reach out to Britt or Jessica. Or if you can't find them, call me, Craig Young. You can find me at Marita or at Bola's company, and I will get you in contact with these folks. Uh, but the key thing is get involved. Um, and as we end, I like to end on sort of a, a sort of an upbeat, uh, who's a Portlander and what do you like here? So I would say at the end of a day, hard day, What's your go-to drink? Do you like a little whiskey, a little wine, a little water, or something else? It's going to be really telling for me. <laughs> uh, I'm a, a dirty martini straight up. Vodka, please. Nice. <laughs> kind of a Manhattan guy myself. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And do you have a, we're a foodie city, we're a foodie state at this point. It is literally driving real estate as bread is nodding ahead mm -hmm. yes to. Yeah. What's your go-to restaurant? Um, I just had... It's, it's my hobby, so I pride myself very much in answering this question. I just had uh, the best meal I've had in a really long time um, at Barfudo um, mm. down on 4th Street. So I highly, highly recommend. Um, really then, unique food. Really unique, really great experience, um, and also good, good martinis. So. Well, boy, it's hard to keep up on the Portland food scene here. So I'm going to uh, fall back to an old classic of a good, my good friend, uh, Moses and Alex Sabina, who own Hot Suppa. Mm. And it's just a classic. And I think they were one of the early spots that had a niche and are still doing it well after all these years. And in Maine, we have long winters, short summers. What's your go-to vacation spot, winter, summer? In the state or out, what do you like? Well, I just got back from Sugarloaf, and uh, it's been a good ski season, so I've been enjoying the winters up there, and we'll be excited to get out to the lakes this summer. Yep, and Britt and I joke about this because I'm a Sunday River person, so we're <laughs> Sugarloaf versus Sunday River, but yeah, definitely for me, grew up in Bethel, um, skiing every day after after school and on the weekends, and we still take the kids up there. Um, and in the summers, uh, we, we love the fact that we can sort of staycation, you know, and, and hit up all the beaches. So 
very lucky to live where we live and happy to raise, be raising my family in Portland. And I hope, um, I hope that, that we can solve all of these problems so that they have a brighter future here. Well, we are lucky to live in Maine. It's a great place and it's great to have you folks all here really doing the extra work, fighting the fight. It's not easy. It's time consuming. I know that and we appreciate it. So thank you. And Gary, thank you for joining me today. My I pleasure. hope to have you at my side more and more. And to everyone else listening, thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you to all our members and thank you to those that have helped make this season of Merida Matters possible with their sponsorship including sponsors NBT Bank and Landry French. Also, we have to thank the wonderful and amazing Shelley Clark, the heart of Merida and our executive director. Thanks everyone. Until next time, be well.